Hello and welcome to the Standard Sportsman Podcast, where your hosts Brent Birch and Kaysen Short will discuss, debate, and detail trending topics within the sport of duck and goose hunting. Brent and Kaysen have over 80 years combined chasing ducks in Arkansas with a like-minded pursuit of leaving waterfowling better than they found it. Each week, you will hear impactful interviews and engaging guests guaranteed to make you a more informed and effective hunter-conservationist. Thanks for spending time with us today. Now, let us jump into today's show with the guys. Hello, everybody. We appreciate you taking some time out of your day to listen to another episode of the Standard Sportsman Podcast. I am your co-host, Brent Birch, and I'm joined, as always, by fellow host, Kaysen Short. Kaysen, what's up? Man, just uh, enjoying these, you know, first few days of summer. It's, this kind of nice, cool weather we've been having still feels a little bit like uh, late spring. So, um, I think that's going to change pretty soon. We're going to get in the dog days of summer. But, you know, the 4th of July is right around the corner, and that, to me, always marks kind of the, the official kickoff point for duck season. It seems like... After the fourth, everyone's talking about ducks, thinking about ducks, and uh, we're moving that way pretty quick. The Standard Sportsman Podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. I've always been a fan of Yeti coolers and their drinkware. Now now they've come out with a Loadout 30 Go Box. Uh, Brent, did you know they're also making those in a 15 and a 60 now? I did. I've been a big fan of the 30. Uh, I actually carry around our, our mobile podcast gear in one, and then I've got another one that I use during duck season that I don't have to worry about any of my gear getting wet or dusty and dry when it when hadn't rained in a while. It's an amazing product. Yeah, so I, I use them a bunch. Uh, same deal. I've got a 30 that stays in the boat, uh, carry camera gear and all sorts of equipment in it. And it's nice to know that clients, dogs, you know, nothing's going to get it wet, going to tear it up. But the, the 15 has really found a spot in my arsenal as well. I switch from hunting with clients to hunting with my kids pretty frequently. And it's great. To, to use that 15 as an ammo box. So I've got all the kids' ammo, gauge reducers, hand warmers, whatever they're going to need in one box. And all I've got to do is grab it and I'm ready to take them out in the woods. Yeah, the Yeti Go box is is definitely the way to go and keep it organized, accessible, and protected. And it's no matter what size you pick, it's a must-have for waterfowl season. Tom Beckby started in 2015 with the simple goal of making classic sporting apparel for sportsmen. Since introducing their flagship tinsaw jacket eight years ago, they've carried that goal forward with a full range of classic wax cotton jackets, canvas, and leather bags, and field gear for waterfowlers and upland hunters. You can shop for their full collection at TomBetby.com, in their Birmingham, Alabama, and Wilson, Arkansas stores, and at over 150 retailers across the United States. Backed by a lifetime guarantee, find out for yourself the difference between quality over quantity. Yeah, it, it definitely starts uh, kind of the hustle, um, obviously, with you operating a, a pretty sizable farm there in Woodruff County, Arkansas, and then we have a, a small farm. I don't actively farm it, but uh, I guess I participate as a duck farmer. Um, that'd be more more appropriate for my my role and my title and all that. But um, but yeah, it's uh, it'll be here before we know it, and um, it's it's definitely a mad hustle. I thought it was kind of interesting. Uh, some of the news that came out yesterday um, came out of the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission. Uh, you know, they made an effort to really uh, beef up their private land biologist program and try to get it on par with some other states. Um, we're we're way behind uh, some of our 
contiguous states. I I know in one specific case with Missouri, mm-hmm. um, I believe they have sixty I private land biologists, right. I, yeah. and I think we have nine mm-hmm. uh, to cover the whole state. So uh, I know Director Booth and and the others at Arkansas Game and Fish Commission have made a, a big push to really beef that up and and allow us as landowners to uh, take advantage of 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 their expertise uh, and with zero dollars tied to it uh, as far as being charged for that kind of consulting. So, uh, but anyway, they had a press release yesterday on a, on a new program that's going to provide, I believe it's $4 million uh, for a flooding for waterfowl flooding, flooding crops. It's, I think it is agricultural land. I don't think it applies to, to timber moist soil units or anything like that. I think it was directly tied to ag, uh, something that, you know, has been farmed. Um, I believe they're titling it the Migratory Bird Resurgence Initiative. Uh, and it'll actually be funded by the NRCS. Um, but uh, did you get a chance to see that come across your desk? I did, yeah. I saw that yesterday afternoon. Um, you know, when, when we met, you and I met with Director Booth, I guess back in February, right after duck season, Um he kind of mentioned that this might be on the on the horizon uh, and talked a little bit to uh, to me about kind of some of the ideas that he was thinking, you know, trying to discourage uh, fall tillage, try to encourage flooding and basically a way to to get more water on the landscape and try to increase the the duck use days here in the state. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit later as far as our, our deficit in regards to that and how habitat here has has really decline over the last few years. So I think this is a really good program. Um, I know a lot of people out there that are already doing this. I'm sure they're going to, they're going to sign up for it, uh, myself included. Um, Cause that stuff is not, it's not free. It costs private landowners a lot of money to, to set the table like they do, but I think it's a good move by the game and fish. I know they're really kind of focusing on, on increasing these private lands biologists. Uh, it, it's amazing the difference between us and Missouri. And you look at some of the stuff going on in Missouri and their habitat is just, it's phenomenal. And they're really kicking our butts um, and they're doing it, you know, through private lands. And you look at the state of Arkansas, I think it's something over 90% of of the land of the habitat acreage is private. So, you know, I, I believe it was last summer we were at a meeting with director, uh, with director Booth and he alluded to that, that, you know, ducks, deer, whatever, whatever you have, doesn't really know the difference between public and private. And as a state, if they're going to manage specifically for the public lands, it, it benefits a lot to manage the private better as well. So I think that's his long-term goal there. Um, and I think it's a good one. I think this program is a really good step in the right direction to, to setting that table. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting too. Uh, you know, I, I wasn't aware of, of, of this one was going to come along. Uh, you know, some of the discussions we've had with him were related to the tax incentives uh, that they, they did not get passed in this current year's legislation or legislature, uh, but they are going to be able to do a trial. So it's got a lot of the same hooks, you know, no fall tillage, uh, leaving water out longer. Um, and you can get a, you know, break on your, on your taxes, on your, on your ground, um, just more ways to incent farmers and landowners to, to leave more habitat for, for water, wintering waterfowl, uh, which we are, doing much less than, than, than the quote unquote, good old days. Um, so, uh, I think these programs are great. Great. Um, anyway, let's, let's jump into the show. We've got a, we've got a really, uh, interesting guest. I first met, first met him 
a few years ago uh, at a, an event here in, in Little Rock that, uh, Casey, you've also been a part of with the, the Duck Season Social, but uh, I thought he, he would be a great guest because I, to me, unlike a lot of scientists, he's he, he's uh, he's got a good way of, of laying it down for the for the uh, the common man like myself. So uh, I'll let you go ahead and introduce our guest and, and we'll get rolling. Yeah. Yeah. I had an opportunity to meet him at the, at the social. That was a, a fun event and always a good time. Uh, but uh, joining us today is Brian Davis, a uh, fellow bulldog, uh, PhD at the department of wildlife and fisheries at Mississippi state uh, and has done, I've read a bunch of your studies and has worked alongside uh, Rick Kaminsky, Mike Brazier, Ed Penny, and a number of other Big, big names in the duck hunting research world. So, Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, and that I uh, kind of fall back on that little little rock event and tell people that that was a really good. I always thought that was just a real positive momentum builder, and um, lots of people, and got an opportunity to just talk about various issues related to waterfowl wetlands. So that was great. I hope you guys do more of those in the future. Yeah, we've actually. Uh... We did one the following year, and I think that's the one that Kaysen was one of the panelists. Uh, actually, we took a break from COVID. We had to skip it, and then and then uh, we did did another one. It was kind of small because that was when the round two of COVID kind of spiked, and we weren't sure how big to make the event. But it still had a, we had an awesome turnout. And then last year, uh, we did the third iteration and had a blowout. It was a uh, it was a great time. I can't remember the statistics on the amount of beer and uh, and liquor that was run through. Plus, they <laughs> wiped out all the barbecue and had to send somebody to Little Caesars to pick up pizzas because there were so many people that didn't get a bite of food. Oh, um, Lord. yeah. So we, I mean, we had a huge time. Awesome panel, uh, and definitely we're doing it again uh, this December during the during that split uh, between oh, the first and second season. So. So all, with all the beer and food, does that mean you had a crowd of incensed people, or just really happy and feeling good? Being? I think they were. Uh, I think they were happy and and feeling good. Uh, you know, last duck season, I believe for most people in Arkansas was better than the previous, and so everybody was felt a little better about things. And uh, and if you base that yeah off all the beer consumed, you'd say for sure. <laughs> yeah, killing killing ducks always seems to help uh, morale. Anyway. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. For sure. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit, uh, you know, on your background? Uh, I know you grew up around, I believe, around the St. Louis area, which, you know, has a has some history with the Mississippi River and and all that. And and I know you spent some time in Arkansas as a as a biologist, uh, waterfowl biologist. And so maybe kind of, you know, run through that and, and kind of bring us up to speed to where you are now. And then we'll we'll get into some of this uh, duck science. Good. Yeah, so you're right. I grew up in in one of the suburbs of St. Louis, and I, I kind of joke, you know, you grew up doing wh- what everybody else does, you know, playing street lot football and soccer and hockey and all that in that part of the world. And and the other thing that I I got to do, my parents actually took me waterfowl hunting when we were my brother and I were young. And back then, I hate to almost reveal the decade, but uh, back then, North Central Missouri specifically Swan Lake National Wildlife Refuge, you know, they would winter about 200,000 EPP Canada geese. So I got to see all that as a kid, you know, you're looking at 200,000, 10, 12 pound Canada geese and uh, it's quite a spectacle, you know? And so 
And then you get older and you realize, hey, you can you can work in this field. You can actually work in waterfowl conservation and make a living. So um, I tell everybody and even my graduate students now, I'm like, had I not gone hunting and had that experience, you know, who knows where I'd be. I'd probably be a, a banker, an accountant or whatever I might do in St. Louis, you know. So um, I was fortunate to have that and then went to University of Missouri, graduated there. And um, Missouri has such an outstanding program. And I thought long and hard about staying there, working in wetlands management. I'm like, ah, just kind of had this research tug. And at that time in the mid-late 80s, there was a lot of new research in California uh, that was getting ginned up because they realized, that, you know, how important the breeding grounds are were for mallards and it wasn't just wintering areas but uh not just the importance of it as a wintering area but also for breeding mallards so there's all kind of stuff that was uh, instituted there and i got to actually that's dr mickey heitmeyer and bob mcclanders from my first two bosses and you know i thought i'd go there and spend a, a year getting field experience i ended up staying six years so um a lot of people don't realize how important california is to waterfowl and uh, they kind of dismiss it as one big, crazy metropolitan place, you know, but incredible place, incredible resources. And um, and then from there, I came here to Mississippi State to work on various wood duck projects. And I uh, got my master's and PhD here. And then, um, honestly, when I left here in 2001, I'm like, man, I am just done with research. I'm researched out. And I had a chance to go work for Ducks Unlimited. I'm I was thinking, man, I'm so glad to be able to, to administer conservation programs, basically, you know, do the things that we, we all learn about in the books and put them on the ground. And so I ended up working for Ducks Unlimited in, in, in Little Rock for from 2001 to 2008. And then in 2009, I moved with the U to coastal Louisiana because of all the things going on there. And I literally lived in Lafayette, Louisiana for nine months. And then this position came open and I thought long and hard about it. I mean, I really enjoyed, you know, coastal Louisiana, especially as, as critical as it is for not just waterfowl, but just, you know, biodiversity in general. And, um, but anyway, I did, I, I decided I, they, they hired me here for whatever reason. And I'm, here I came back in 2009. So, um, I had a lot of great experiences and, and, um, you know, I don't regret at all coming back here. I mean, it's great to, to be around the younger generations and continue trying to recruit people for waterfowl and wetlands conservation. So that's, that's you, kind of my life in a nutshell, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Do you find this, because this came up in a, in a previous podcast, are you finding, you know, since you're dealing with the younger students uh, there on campus, do you find more of them are coming from a, a, a background like yours where you hunted first and that drew your interest to the, uh, to waterfowl science, or are they come in strictly no, no hunting background strictly for the science? I'll tell you what, unlike some universities like Georgia, for example, where they say all our kids are coming from Atlanta and nobody, nobody's ever been on a farm or hunted. It is different here. And even my classes, for example, I teach waterfowl ecology and management and also wetlands ecology and management. Um, and uh, there's some hybridization. I get some of the same students take both, but a lot of people take the wetlands course. They have never 
never really hunted. Um, if they did, it may be deer or squirrel or something, but hardly waterfowl hunted. So that I think is changing. The waterfowl class, um, there are several that do take it that have never waterfowl hunted, but most of them, I'd say at least 50% of them still do or have before. And what's interesting is we teach a um, summer forestry class. These kids, it's like forestry boot camp for the undergrads here. And it they spend all summer like cruising timber and doing, you know, timber harvest statistics and economics and all that. And, and for one week in the summer, we have wildlife week. And that was this week. That was my day yesterday. So they have like a deer day, um, a duck wetlands day, which was mine, endangered species, quail, and fish. There's like three or four, about four hard days of those topics. And so yesterday, literally yesterday morning in class, again, these are all forestry majors. Some of them are wildlife majors. I'm like, how many people in here have ever hunted? And there were something like 43 kids in that class and all but like five hands on. And I even said, holy smokes. I mean, this is way more than like my wetlands class, you know, and even the waterfowl class. So um, I don't know the backgrounds of those forestry kids, you know, compared to wildlife kids. Uh, but most of them have, have, you know, they raised their hand. I believe them. most of them have hunted. So we still do have a lot of hunters here. Um, you know, people that have been on farms and that. But uh, And then I asked them, how many of you from the Delta? And I think one hand went up. So I don't know where they're getting experiences. I, I wish we, I wish I did a better job of this. I ask my kids that every year, you know, the first day of my classes, you know, have you hunted? Have you ever bought a duck stamp? Those kind of things. And I've, I've done a horrible job of really putting that uh, database together. It's like I read those every year and I kind of let it go and I get on other things. But anyway, um, not to, not to belabor all that, but, we have, and then we have sort of this animal planet cohort too. We have some people here that, I mean, they, they wouldn't know a wetland from a cornfield in some cases. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I mean, it's not that, not to belittle them, but, um, you know, they learned that. But yeah, so it's, it's all across the board. So interesting. Well, that, that's good. I was, uh, I was a little nervous as to what the answer was going to be to, uh, to that question there. So yeah. Good, good to hear that uh, at least in regards to Startwell that there's a good number of hunters going through those classes. So I think uh, I was in the uh, college business and industry there. I think most of the Delta kids go through that side of campus. Uh, forestry, the forestry group was always a little bit different. Um, yeah. Yeah. But you, so you've covered, I mean, from Louisiana, Arkansas, California, I mean, that's the three big rice states right there. So uh being in rice production myself, you're going to have to excuse me if the majority of my questions are related to rice, but I feel like you're probably the, uh, the resident expert on that anyway. Maybe. Uh, I don't know about that. Scott <laughs> Manley is the expert. Okay. Well, <laughs> you what? should do a rice podcast with Scott. He's, that's what he's doing now for DU, but I'll, we'll see what we can do. All right. Well, let's, so let's start with, uh, I, I use it all the time and I forget sometimes when I'm posting on social media that uh, a lot of people don't necessarily understand the lingo or, or get all the abbreviations. Can you explain to everybody what a duck use day is? Yeah. Duck use day is basically uh, how much food do we need to feed a mallard sized duck for one day? And so that, that sounds very simple. Um, and it's, it, it's very, it's very important 
Oh boy, here we go. <laughs> it's very important because you know everything's got to eat, right? And and so as we, I, I kind of joke with the class yesterday and my my students, I'm like, it's it's all about food, but it's not all about food. And there's all kinds of foods on the landscape, and so what? Why that's important? It's it's a fundamental metric, and so um, you know you're aware. People are probably aware of the North American Waterfowl Management Plan, and then the joint ventures. And in our world down here, we're part of the Lower Miss Joint Venture. And so, why that's important is if, if it's like okay, these are our objectives. You know, we want a winner. X millions of birds and uh, one million mallards, whatever the number is, then you start doing the math. And, and what goes into all of that is are things like um, what habitats are out there, you know, how much of those, how much food is within those habitats, and then how much food does a duck need to eat per day, and then what is the metabolizability like what is the what is the use of that food to that duck energetically so there's various components that go into this calculation and depending on the wintering objective um you kind of start doing the math and going hey we need you know x billions of duck energy days if we're going to have um x number of mallards and x number of other dabbling ducks and the other thing you do is extrapolate that over about 110 day 107 day wintering period so again it's somewhat theoretical but um it's really and i say this to a lot of people including hunters the food part of what drives a duck is probably the easiest thing for us to wrap our arms around because there's been a lot of studies done on tme that's true metabolizable energy that's basically the the energy value that's left at the very end after water and all that is passed through the bird. What are the nutrients that those birds can use? And so there's been tons of graduate projects on TME values. Um, we know those for things like rice and corn and our, our more soil seeds, acorns or acorns, soybeans. Uh, we have a pretty good handle on that. And we have a pretty good handle on you know, how much food birds need to eat per day. And then we have a pretty good handle on how much food is out there because of all these like soil coring projects that, you know, Kaminsky has done here, Kaminsky and Reineke back in the day. And then, uh, you know, Luke Naylor did some in California for his work. And of course there's been work done in Arkansas and Houston Havens and Mississippi. There's a legion of studies just in this part of the world. So, so we have a good handle on what the energy values are, how much of the food is on the landscape. And, and that's, those are the, those are like the tangible things, you know, the, the more intangible things. And you'll probably want to talk about this later, but like sanctuary, we really have no clue about you know, how do sanctuaries really move birds or what do they really need? Unlike food, because you know, you can do, you can just do those energy calculations and it's like, all right, you know, we have a food deficit or we have a food surplus and, and somewhere in there, there should be some sort of, some sort of correlation with, you know, ultimate duck numbers and the amount of food on the landscape. And 
But again, then you've got all the other factors. You got weather, you got cold fronts, you got droughts, you got hunting disturbance. You know, there's all these other things. So basically, you know, waterfowl migration and, and duck use days are really this big sort of stochastic, um, multivariable influence. You know, it, it's not just food. So it's, you know, if we have no food, we're in trouble, right? But, but, and so it's all about food, but yet it's not. So <laughs> that's kind of a, kind of a long-winded answer, I guess. But um, just because we have really good knowledge of the food dynamics, that doesn't mean ducks are going to come here and stay right here because you have all these other factors. So anyway, that's, that's kind of that in short. And I can give you some of those values, um, you know, and that, and that might lead into some other questions, but you know, corn, everybody, everybody wants to grow corn and sure corn's got almost 3.7, what we call kilograms per, per gram. It's basically how much metabolizable energy Rice is really good. Rice is like 3.3. Um, acorns are a little less, 2.67, and soybeans are about 2.65. But in the middle of all that, um, more soil seeds on average, and some are much better than others, but it's almost about 2.8. So it's below corn rice, but it's above acorns and soybeans. So all that said, that gets into a whole other can of worms about, you know, what we grow, what we flood, you know, what, what ducks consume, things like that. But so anyway, those are some of the more common energy values that we have a good handle on. And so, again, you can go back into the math. Well, how many rice acres are in Arkansas? How many rice acres are in Mississippi? But then you got to consider flooding too, right? Um, snow geese and white fronts, they'll, they'll certainly feed in dry fields, but most ducks won't, you know, at least down here. So then you got to figure, well, if there's one and a half million acres of rice in Arkansas, how much of that is really still on the landscape in December? Then how many of those acres are flooded? You know, that's a little harder thing to get at. Um, but those are all the things that really influence, you know, the distribution and, you know, the residency times of ducks, if you will, waterfowl. Um, so it's, it's some of it's, I don't want to say it's easy math, but it's easier to kind of reconcile how much food we have on the landscape, but all those other messy things that are going on at the same time, it makes it really, there's, there's no straight linear answer, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, definitely com complex. Um, and, and I'm, I'm assuming the reason why we're trying to incent or not, I'm not assuming I know. Um, the reason why we're trying to incent landowners and farmers to leave habitat and to um, get paid to flood is because we're not doing enough of it. Uh, and our, our, or what we're, what we're providing and leaving for the ducks isn't enough. Um, so I don't know if there's a historical, you know, duck use day calculation where we are now versus where we were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, but um, you have to give some credit to the, 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 you know, the science community of, of kind of giving everybody a heads up. Hey, we're not doing enough. Um, and we got to get back on track. If we want to perpetuate, you know, waterfowl and, and the sport and everything else. No, you're exactly right. And the other thing that we do know now, these studies, man, time flies. Um, 
some of these studies are now 15 to 20 years old, so we almost have to redo them. But the other thing that that Dr. Kaminsky and former grad students have done is, um, and, and, and even Scott Manley, he was really the impetus of this back in the mid-1990s because he was working on with rice farmers and they were doing different experiments with fields, you know, leaving stubble, um, burning it, whatever. There, He had several treatments. And then some would leave the boards in, some would take them out, and then he would go and collect water samples and look at soil erosion, water quality, those kind of things. So his his study then was, you know, more rice environmental, uh, water quality, soil quality based. But at the same time, you know, he was taking those soil cores, and um, he'd come back here and he's like, he's like, Doc, man, there's no there's no waste rice in this field, you know. Long story short, you know, then then it's like, well, is that is that just Bolivar County, Mississippi? Is that how those farmers farm over there? Is this really widespread? And then Josh Stafford came along and did the same thing and took like 10,000 soil cores from the Boot Hill of Missouri to Louisiana. And it's pretty scary what, at least then, and it's probably no better now, but by the time, between the time of rice harvest, and again, this is this is mid late late two thousand early when Stafford came along it was early mid two thousands. Um, between the time of harvest and then, like the middle of December, second week of December, we're all getting fired up about hunting mallards, right? There's like a seventy one percent decline in waste rice. So, so the farmer, you know, let's say Labor Day, they're done cutting rice. Well, by the time we're really getting geared up to hunt ducks, um, the amount of rice in those fields is down by 71%. And, and the other thing that a few folks have done, we've always asked the question, and it's true with all animals, you know, or, and even people. Like I tell the students, you guys are in the bars all night and you want to go get some food. You know, and there's one, there's one buffet with a bunch of wilted lettuce and the other buffet has got a bunch of fresh biscuits and gravy. Where are you going to eat, right? It's a no-brainer. So um, what we've, we've sort of applied that in the waterfowl world, the question is, when does it become you know, difficult to forage for food? And at least in the agricultural world, it's not so much true in, in natural wetland, but about 50 pounds of rice per acre is when ducks just say the heck with this and they go somewhere else. And so when you look at Manley and Stafford's data combined, um, by the time we're really getting geeked up about hunting hours in early mid-December, there's like 80 pounds per acre less. It's almost, it's really close to the giving up density before a lot of birds even get here. And then there were some other people like in Western Tennessee on you know, the, the Delta part of Tennessee, they did this with like waste corn and soybean in the same trends. And so part of that is because, you know, the rice varieties have gotten to the point that um, it's just harvested so early that, you know, there's so much time for germination, um, granivory from, from small mammals, um, you know, re you know, germination. I mean, think about Arkansas and Mississippi deltas in September, you know, all the way through even October anymore, it's pretty darn warm. So you got all this, food on the ground, but way before ducks get here, you know. Um, in contrast, in South Louisiana, they have what we call the tune crops, R-A-T-O-O-N, 
and it's basically a double a double rice crop. And so, at least in South Louisiana, uh, you know they harvest really early down there. And if they just had a one crop harvest, gee, there'd be nothing on the ground down there, right? But because they can retune, um, they'll cut it again later in the fall. So really, that retune crop almost kind of mirrors the way it was. I kind of joke, you know, like 50 years ago when people were cutting late in the fall, you know, and trying to get their crop out before rain and all that. Um, the other thing they'll do with the routine crop, though, is some of that goes towards crawfish. So some of that's not really great duck habitat because it's flooded deep under, you know, they're running boats around um, sampling crawfish or harvesting crawfish, which is a good thing. I'm not complaining about that, but it's just a different system. So one of the things I kind of joke with people here, um, it's alarming right now because everybody's done, you know, like George Dunklin says to me, he's like, heck, Brian, I'm done cutting rice on Labor Day, you know? Well, shoot, it's there's so much time for germination and, and, and loss of that seed. And so it's as weird as it sounds, I mean, there's nothing we can really do about that right now. And I guess the bizarre part of my thought is, Man, I, I hope we can come up with with varieties that we plant even earlier because eventually maybe we can get to a ratoon situation in Arkansas and Mississippi like South Louisiana. So if we could get a double crop, um, we might have more rice on the ground later in the fall than than we do now uh, with just a single harvest. You know, I have no idea. I mean, I'm not a crop geneticist, but those are just my thoughts, you know, and that so that's one part of it. And the other part of it is, you're right, and I wish I had the statistics in my head, but my observation is um, there's just more fall tillage now. It just seems like fewer flooded rice acres. I mean, you drive across the Mississippi Delta in fall and winter, and I hate to say it, but it just, it just looks like just barren earth. You know, other than the duck clubs and the WMAs and the National Wildlife Refugees, which you know, the, the state and federal areas make up such a small part. Man, it's just so dry, you know. And um, in Arkansas, and Scott and I talk about that, and Luke Naylor, he's, he could probably give you the numbers, but um, it just seems like there's a more and more of a tendency to fall hit these fields. There's not as much water. And, again, I don't have the data, so I'm kind of just speaking from observation. But um, we do know that water drives ducks. And some of these long-term aerial surveys that have been done over there with Dave Kremens and some of the stuff we're doing, it's water on the landscape and water, what we call water recurrence. Um, you know, water goes into a field that may not stay there, but if it floods, you know, you get the Cache or White Rivers flooding or um, the Yazoo River over here, whatever it may be, sort of those pulses of water, those are really important and kind of moving ducks or having ducks respond. And so if you've got, you know, an area like the Grand Prairie that is pretty well controlled and managed and there's there's an emphasis, a de-emphasis on water, you know, that's going to have an influence on ducks. Um, so anyway, that's kind of a long-winded answer, but there's, there's, there's the amount of rice in the field and then there's, you know, the amount of water that kind of covers the landscape. I mean, those are two important factors. Yeah, you know, you, you mentioned kind of what it was like maybe 50 years ago as far as the return crop in Louisiana. <clears throat> and I think you're really on to something there. I know 
you know, 35 years ago here, we were lucky if we started to harvest rice by the end of September. And now, much like, you know, George said, sometimes we're done by the first now. So there's such a longer period. And I think that long period of grain laying on the ground and harvest being wrapped up really lends itself to all this fall tillage. It's such a more common practice now than it was 10, 15, even 30 years ago. Um, There's this great sense amongst farmers that, hey, you know, the more work I can do right now, the easier it's going to be in the spring. And of late, we've had pretty traditionally wet springs that kind of limit spring tillage to some degree. So it's an ever-changing landscape uh, on the production side. Sure. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And you got, uh, you also have to factor in the explosion of geese as well uh, and the timing of when they show up, Um, you know, those populations over the last decade, 15 years have just exploded uh, as far as what winters in in Arkansas, I, I'm not sure about Mississippi, but in Arkansas, uh, and they're just going through those those freshly harvested fields, picking what they want. And between that and the germination, there there is not much left. No, you're right. And I, I, I actually have the good fortune of being able to hunt a farm. It's the Tarkington farm over there that yeah. abuts um, the rice experiment station. And yep. I kind of laugh. I'm like, you know, this is, this is the first place that white fronts come in this part of the world is like that, that region right there, because they've got all that food on the research center, but you, but you're exactly right. And I think, I think there's a lot more that we do need to understand. I mean, it's obvious there's, there's, you know, millions of snow geese and there's, seemingly millions of them in the Arkansas Delta, um, at least hundreds of thousands. I mean, there, there's a lot. And so they, they sort of have this negative rap, right? Like, man, all these geese are here and they're, they're sort of like linearly, linear, linearly, sorry, consuming, um, all my duck habitat. And I think, I think that's partially true. And for example, you know, in these fields that, that we hunt on, my God, you go out there in the morning and there's, I mean, there's literally 10,000 birds that get off of that thing. They've been roosting out there all night, you know, so, and probably foraging, you know, so they, they can wreck a lot of habitat pretty quick. Now, is it this, you know, just this broadband sweeping annihilation of rice and other habitat important to ducks? I would say no. Um, I would say there's, there are a lot of places geese go to forage that ducks never will. And I think there's a lot of duck habitat where the geese won't really venture into. And a lot of that has to do with like dry or muddy ground. You know, how many times do we see, you know, especially when they're feeding on green browse or whatever, it's just so much easier for them to pull it out of the mud. And so I think there's a lot of, a lot of surface area, a lot of fields where, we may have a lot of geese and we, we all of a sudden assume that, oh man, all my duck food is gone. But I think in probably a lot of those fields, it's not, they're not really managed for, for duck habitat anyway. Now, you know, on the other hand, where you are managing shallow water and you've got the perfect post-harvested rice field and just a few inches of water and those geese get in there. Yeah. That's, that's definitely problematic. So, um, I think there's truth on both sides, but we don't really have a good idea, you know, of like how many, we don't really have a good 
key of the habitat selection and how they're really influencing ducks. And so on, in some times and places, maybe they are. And, you know, in an overall wintering population level, is that negatively influencing ducks? I don't know about that. But, you know, on, on people's um, site-specific areas or farms, uh, there's a lot of disgruntled people because, you know, it does happen. It really does happen. Uh, but how how broad is that? You know, how does that really translate to duck numbers in, in the Delta? That's a harder one to, to figure out. And those things are really hard to count, you know, on aerial surveys. They flush so far in front of the plane and all that. But the bottom line is I think there's truth to it. They they do wipe out some fields pretty quick. And and you guys know from living over there, some of those fields, they look like a, a square lake. And it looks like an aquaculture pond. Even in early January, after you get birds oh, sure. in there and rummaging around, so yeah, on site-specific areas, no doubt, um, I think they're really problematic. Uh, but but widespread and how does that really translate across those huge regions? I'm not sure about that. You know, and it could be worse than we think. We just don't really know. It's been a hard one to study, and there hasn't been a lot of research on that yet. But it's uh, probably something we need to do. But it's it's not easy. But anyway. The other, let me let me put a plug in for white fronts. I mean, this is just me personally. I mean, you know, I, I joke with Scott because this is the farm he he's maintained now for like twenty years. I'm like, you know, we all we all come to hunt uh, Arkansas to hunt mallards, but I said white fronts. You know, especially three per day. I mean, what a what a treat, you know, to be able to go out and shoot two or three specks a day, and. um I kind of joke, it's like, maybe this is the new Grand Prairie adventure, you know, that's going to retain duck hunters. I mean, they're like, hey, not as many mallards in the rice fields, but we got all these specs, you know, and it seems like that's really caught fire. Um, a lot of people doing that, but, you know, they're just such a fantastic bird and they're, they're a lot easier to decoy and they're just a, a real joy to have here now, you know, in this part of the world, they weren't here 10, 20 years ago. So anyway, kind of another long-winded answer, but. <laughs> well, I think you'd be hard pressed to find uh, two, two guys more interested than in speckle bellies than Casey and myself. Um, oh man. I long, be long, long before it became uh, the, cool. <laughs> the cool thing it is now, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I've been, I've been on that soapbox for, several years with the game and fish that we, we, we better start managing and taking the white fronts more seriously because they are, they, the, your opportunity to hunt waterfowl in a field in Arkansas is exponentially better chasing speckle bellies than it is a mallards yeah. today. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and so we, we shouldn't be so reckless and, and, or not reckless is the right word, but we shouldn't be careless about, limits and and length of time that we're hunting them uh and some other things that we've kind of you know we've kind of bounced back and forth with 72 days and 88 days two geese three geese right all that and and of course um we get we go off on a whole nother tangent on the 15 20 gun guided hunts but um uh, and that pressure that that creates but uh but yeah um I totally agree that speckle bellies, if, if you want to uh, improve hunter success field-wise, better learn how to hunt them. 
Yeah, it's it's it. You know, the psychology of all this is really interesting too. Because, um, I mean, I love snow geese, right? But I'm not I'm not really a snow geese hunter. I mean, if they fly by, I'll shoot them, you know, and I'll I'll do my best to make them taste good. And some of <laughs> you know, and they often do taste good, contrary to what people think. But um, there's kind of this disdain for the snow geese, right? Because there are just so many, and they're so hard to hunt, and they're eating all my duck food, you know. And really, yeah, they do scarf up rice, but they're they're also, you know, they eat a lot of browse, you know, they eat a lot of things that ducks aren't necessarily eating other than, than maybe widgeon out there on the landscape. But um, specks are kind of a different beast. Specks are, the white fronts are big time seed eaters, right? So they really, they'll scarf, scarf up grass seed, they'll, they'll eat rice, um, but yet it's like we're, we're really beholden to the white fronts, you know, everybody's kind of has this passion for them now. So, so we don't look at them as the villain, even though they're out there eating some of the the rice, I think as people learn how to shoot them and learn how to hunt them and they learn how, how good they taste. Um, I cook them over here for bulldog tailgates and my students are like, doc, these aren't geese. It tastes like steak. I'm like, man, these yeah. are, these are white fronts. <laughs> I tell you. So yeah. um, it's, it's kind of weird. You know, the snow goose is sort of the villain and, and the, and the white fronts are becoming, um, you know, kind of kind of endearing to us. And yet, you know, they're out there probably eating more rice than on a per bird basis, probably eating more rice than snow geese are. Anyway. Yeah, I, I would say their huntability has probably uh, lent itself to uh, them being so popular. Uh, being able to call and then the fact that they'll respond to a call, uh, answer back, and then decoy like they do, they're just – they are they are fun to hunt and have been for think, thirty yeah. years here. So, yeah, I'm I'm like a marginal caller, but man, some of them will come right in with their wing set and you think you're the best in the world. Then you go hunt with John Stevens, you know, and it's like, oh, I really don't know how to call these things. <laughs> but but you get some out of ten to come in, you know, and it's like, wow, this is really cool. So yeah, they're they're an amazing bird, and I think they're they've really caught on, and and for me to really again kind of getting to the psychology it's like hey it'd be great to shoot some ducks in an arkansas rice field but man i'm going over there to harvest two or three specks you know that's kind of my mentality um so that yeah, just everybody's kind of motivated by different things you know so sure well i i think as a as a state arkansas would do well to kind of take note of southwest louisiana and what gun pressure and habitat changes did to to that landscape uh i think brent was on really on to something there when we were talking about that uh we're we're now seeing them we're seeing uh transmitter birds harvested in indiana and places like that and you're seeing them in western kentucky and you see people talk about oh you know we we've got five thousand and we've got ten thousand i could remember in the early 90s here in arkansas that that was the population that we would winter so they're they're ever changing and they're pretty quick to change their environment. And if we're not careful and we don't manage for that, then I'm not saying Indiana is going to be the next Arkansas. Certainly they don't have the rice production, but the, the right. pressure here on our landscape is driving them north. Uh, the, the data we're seeing on those transmitters is they'll, they'll get here in late September, early October, and then they'll disperse and spread out to those other states to the north of us. So they uh, say all that, say they react really quickly to a changing environment. The Standard Sportsman Podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. Sitka Gear, turning clothing into gear. No name is more synonymous with waterproof clothing than Gore-Tex. 
and over the last 50 years, Cortex has changed how we look at waterproof clothing. Waders have come a long way since I borrowed a pair of felt-sole Converse from my mother to go on my first hunt in the woods. The Delta waders from Sika Gear have made disposable waders a thing of the past. From the Gore-Tex lining to the breathable fabric to even the boots on them, I can stay comfortable day in and day out in the field. From high-performance base layers to windproof, waterproof outer layers, Sika Gear has you covered. Gunner, the team that brought you the world's best dog kennel, recently released a training bumper designed to better assist working dogs and their owners throughout the field and training obedience process. The Gunner bumper has a taper vented design to promote proper holding and maximum breathability. It also has an adjustable removable rope with two grip and carry positions. And because they crafted this with a proprietary rubber compound, it's sure to be a durable and reliable tool. Maybe the thing that sets it apart the most, though, is the removable cap that allows you to utilize an interior cavity for wings, feathers, and any other scent training necessity. Most of the product reviews reference that, including this five-star review from Mark. I absolutely love my new bumpers. The ability to scent train with these is saving me on live frozen birds, let alone the ease and convenience of using the bumper versus a thawed bird. Now I simply take a piece of the wing and slide it into the bumper. Historically, I went through a bird every couple of days. Now one teal has lasted me two weeks. They're extremely versatile and like everything Gunner, extraordinarily well-designed and constructed. Well, let's uh, let's shift gears a little bit. We'll go out, we'll get out of the, the ag and the field side of things. Let's, let's talk about, uh, you know, food that's available in the flooded timber. Cause you, you and I had some conversations here recently um, related to the the MythBusters article that'll be in the the Greenhead magazine, um, and and you know what? Let's talk about what ducks are actually, what they're coming to the woods for. We know refuge, we know they're coming there to eat, but you've got a contingency in the duck hunting world nowadays that believes that they don't eat acorns. Uh, they never, you know, the, the 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 quote you hear over and over again: "I've never killed a duck with an acorn in its craw." Um. So let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, you know what they're coming in there for, uh, what they're feeding, and and when uh, some of that diet shifts. Um, you know, I don't know that they're eating acorns from beginning to end. I don't know they're eating invertebrates from beginning to end. But but let's uh let's elaborate elaborate on that a little bit, and because obviously the green tree reservoirs, public land wise, have a lot of the a lot of the state's attention. Uh, it's got a lot of the conservation organizations' attention uh, in Arkansas because we've suffered some a downturn in some of the quality of our habitat that's publicly managed, uh, and and those ducks possibly have shifted to private, well managed private uh, lands that are uh, easier to easier to manage than what the public, the game and fish is dealing with. But uh, let's talk about that for a little bit. If you want to kind of get into First, that food source, and then the management piece. Yeah, is there is there a piece of habitat that seems to be more enraging and debated than than bottom or hardwood floors? No, um, no. <laughs> and it was it was this field day. We had a five oaks, and then um, on by it was just really enlightening. I mean, it's just good to get out and do that stuff. I mean, you, you kind of know from from the research and and talking to people sort of what's going on, but to get out there with, with all these agency people that are really working on this stuff um, and just to really sit back and realize, you know, what's happened to the woods in Arkansas and all the money that Arkansas game and fish 
is going to spend to to resurrect, you know, bottom and hardwood forest. I mean, it really, it's a testament to the importance of, you know, waterfowl hunting in Arkansas. I mean, I think one of the guys said we're, they're fixing to spend something like a hundred million dollars. I mean, that's, that's, that's incredible, you know, and that just goes to show that one, the damage has been done and, and two, um, the the desire to maintain those quality conditions, you know, and and this, you know, I kind of harped on this in class yesterday with a bunch of foresters, you know, and I I talked about bottomland hardwoods, and you show them a definition of a bottomland, and, and and a lot of the key words when you when you define a bottomland hardwood forest, especially in terms of flooding, words are like periodic, you know, infrequent. Um, episode it you know it's not bring the water up in the fall leave it all winter and draw it down when duck season's over and and i showed them graphs hydrographs you look at a hydrograph of a bottomland hardwood forest in the hydrology it looks like a heartbeat it's up and down right in natural system and so um in naturally flooded forest and in, in, in let's say pre Anthropocene time before we got here and put big levees up and changed the hydrology, you know, those woods, they didn't flood all the time. They didn't flood every year. They, um, they might have flooded for a couple of weeks in the winter and then they were dry. I mean, it's very, very stochastic, very, um, unpredictable. You know, some years they were flooded all year. Some years they were probably flooded in the summer, you know, but it wasn't. What we what we've done now because of our love to hunt ducks in the woods is we we've really sort of um, made this real predictable flood regime totally contrary to what a natural system evolved. In. So these bottom of hardwoods, you know, they look like big flat areas just full of hardwood trees, but a true bottomland system, you know, has natural. I don't know if ridge and swale is really the right word, but there's a lot of natural in you know undulations. It's not totally flat. And so your tree species composition, you know, there's different trees, it's very diverse. You know, the, the cypress aren't growing on top of the hill, the cypress are growing down where it's nearly wet all the time or most of the year, you know. Cherry bark oak isn't growing down in the water, it's growing up on a little higher ridge within the forest. So you have all these different trees that that offer different things, and and for the duck hunters, you know, we're, we when we think about acorns or acorns in the south, as we like to joke, it's really four red oaks: the the water and willow oak, cherry bark, and the nut oak. And where I'm from in Missouri, we call those pin oaks, and the, the pin oak and the nut oak are sort of these ecological equivalents, but in different places. And so. What I what I would say to people is one, think about this landscape. Ducks have been coming here for thousands of years. The last Wisconsin glaciation was like ten thousand years. Glaciers went away, birds settled the prairies, and you can bet for the last nine thousand plus years, mallards have been coming to Arkansas. And all the while the Mississippi River's changed, you know, we've got all these oxbows and old meanders and river channels and all kind of wonderful biodiverse things. But at the core of that was bottom and hardwood forest. So um, Dr. Kaminsky, when I was a grad student, he had a great analogy. He's like, you know, when you think about the brown plumage of a hen mallard, 
it goes from a grassland adapted duck to a forest adapted duck about at about St. Louis, where the Missouri meets the Mississippi River. If you think about that, historically, it was all prairie north of there. Not all prairie, but a lot of prairie. And then south of there was hardwood forest. So mallards and other ducks have evolved with acorns and periodically flooded woods. And before rice, corn, and soybeans, they ate weed seed, you know, which is now our modern day more soil management, seasonally flooded wetlands. So anybody, I, I tell any naysayer about, oh, I don't see acorns and mallards. I mean, these are hardwood forests to me, in my opinion, are just a central component of mallard life history, at least in this part of the world. Um, and so, yeah, I would, I, it, and, and, for someone to say mallards don't eat acorns, I would show them the picture of a mallard drake I killed about five years ago in a woods, in a pin oak woods in Missouri. And in the just the one bird that I opened up, there were 28 uh, pin oak, which is the size of nut all oak acorns, in one duck. We were, my dad and brother and I were like an hour and a half in there and we left. So Lord only knows how many acorns that bird would have eaten, how many all the other birds would have eaten. And so... To say that ducks don't eat acorns is total myth. Now, do they all eat them? Probably not. Do they fully rely on them in the winter? No, there's a lot of other food sources. So, again, you know, people want to break it down into this kind of simple linear um, decision or outcome, and it's it's very complex. You know, there's and, – and the one thing we are learning a lot about mallards and other ducks is there's so much individual variation some birds like to fly a lot some don't some move around a lot some some tend to prefer woods more than rice fields and other individuals prefer more soil more than wood so not every mallard is the same much less every other species and so yeah are you going to harvest a duck in the middle of duck season in arkansas with no acorns yes you will um, does that mean they don't eat them? No, it doesn't. So it's it's a complicated um, it's a complicated answer, and it's it's something that we're you know we're continuing to battle with. And one of the cool kind of new frontiers. And I actually have a student working in South Carolina in the coastal wetlands, but now we're using a lot of like DNA analysis and food. So um, some of the geneticists are building like food libraries. Like we know we know what the DNA looks like of corn or millet seed or annual smart weed. And so when we collect birds, you can collect duck poop, for example, and run that through a bunch of analyses. You can match that with this library of known food items. So that's kind of a new frontier. And um, I think some of Dr. Osborne's students at UAM, they're working on that right now. And just yesterday, two days ago at the field, they were talking about really expanding on that, kind of getting that you know, more of the food selection process. So it's not a real simple answer, but yes, ducks do eat acorns. Um, you know, you, you, but you, on the other hand, you may be hunting in a woods and shoot a duck and there's, and it's full of rice. You know, it just flew out from the rice fields and came into the woods to loaf. So it's, it's not a real easy answer. Um, and there's probably individuals that come here every year and they can't get enough of the forest you know, in terms of individual mallards. And there's other ones that I think are, I'm convinced now after watching, looking at telemetry data that I like to hang out in more of the open rice field environments, you know? So 
not every bird's the same, even within mallards, individuals are a lot different and to expect everything to behave, you know, according to some roadmap isn't, isn't, uh, it doesn't always work out that way. So, and then the other one I often get is ducks eat pecans. No way. I've never heard of that. And again, I've, I've had the good fortune again in Missouri of sort of these opportunistic floods where the, the you know, woods flood like Nebu high. I mean, you can literally hunt them in Nebu's. And those ducks piling, you can't keep them out. I mean, it's just like, you know, laying sugar on a levee and watching the fire and stuff. You know, I mean, it's just phenomenal. I mean, they scarf them up. So does that happen all the time in a lot of places? No. Um, a lot of people don't have the good fortune of being able to experience that. So then they're inclined to say, oh, that doesn't happen. or They don't eat pecans. And I'm here to say, uh, yes, they do. <laughs> so anyway, that's kind of another long-winded answer, but. I don't see anybody levying up a pecan grove uh, <laughs> on the prairie and, and well, there's, and there's just, them. You know, a lot of them aren't, aren't designed to be flooded and, and, and some places in the bottoms where there's opportunistic flooding. I, I mean, it's, it can be lights out, you know? Um, so that's just my experience. Yeah. Wild. So yeah, the other, and then I don't know if you want to talk about flooding. I mean, that's the really big, and the other analogy I like to, to, to impart on people, landowners or students or whatever. It's like we, we've loved the resource now for decades. I think if memory serves, the first green tree reservoir was built in Arkansas, like in 1930, 32, whatever it was. And ever since people are like, Oh wow, man, you can levy these things up and look at the duck response. We've loved the resource to death, you know? So it's, it's nobody's fault. Um, it's not to throw stones at landowners or anybody else. A lot of it is we just didn't know what constant flooding does to trees like we do now, right? I mean, we know now you yeah. can't, you don't want to be bring water up in September. You know, the, I don't know how many duck clubs in Arkansas have heard people, you know, the early, early bird gets the worm, um, mentality is like let's let's be the first one to flood our trees the ducks be migrating and they'll see it you know and they'll come down and use our woods blah 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 and it's like hold on you know these these hardwoods aren't meant to be flooded in september and october you know we need to hold off and in the other i guess the other challenge over there as i've heard a lot of people say man if i don't get that rice drain water coming down the canal i may not have any water you know for the season and and part of the problem is, you know, if it, if it was just us three and we owned a thousand acres of woods, I'd be inclined personally between the three of us. I don't know how you guys feel, but I'd be like, you know what? Let's just let it, let's just see what happens. Hopefully we'll get some rain. But everybody over there, because you've got hunters, you're selling leases, you got a lot of money invested. It's like they got to get water. You know, you got to get water. And so what happens is, and I understand that. And I'm not condemning that, but what happens is ecologically, those trees weren't designed to have water when everybody's trying to get water, right? Um, yeah. And really, if you look at acorn masting and acorn drop, it's really later in the winter. And, and again, historically, before people got here, very likely birds used, you know, weed fields, shallow moist soil areas along river channels and oxbows. And then later in winter, as you got more floods, it got wetter later in the winter, then they hit the woods, you know? And what we've done as a hunting culture is 
early bird gets the worm, man. Let's get the water on. Ducks can see it. We'll we'll habituate them. Um, you know, go use our place and not yours. And you know, after six or seven or eight decades now, whatever it is, um, look what's happened to the trees. You know, and again, you know, I'm not condemning people. I mean, we all love to hunt ducks in the woods, right? And, and we didn't have the science in the 1940s and 50s like we have now. So it's really nobody's fault, but um, but look at what it's going to take now. Look at the money that Arkansas Game and Fish is going to spend now to go back. I mean, that's a real testament to the love of the bottom hardwood, bottom on hardwood resource, you know. And, um, do I think it's a good decision by them? I, I think it is. If, you know, functionally, if we can get if you can get water right, and it's what I always tell the students, if you can get a functional wetland in place, everything else will take care of itself. You know, don't don't go away. How do we maximize mallards? Don't worry about that. Worry about hydrology. Worry about soil types. Pay attention to the little details that you don't really like to think about. And then the rest of it will take care of itself. You know, that's just my opinion. So it's taken a long, long time. And, and we've done a lot of damage. And again, I'm not pointing fingers, but, um, you know, there's, and, and again, it's not to say, do, do ducks use overcup oak woods? Yes, they do. Do most ducks eat overcup acorns? No, they don't. They're too big for the most part. But I think the other value of hardwoods, is just that structural component. You know, birds can, mallards like to hide, you know, mallards like to, Mallards like to sit in four-foot-tall annual smartweed because people can't see them. They'll court in there. They'll they may you know they'll feed, but they'll they use it as structure. It's a windbreak. And in the woods, I think they're the same way. You can have you know you can have woods with a lot of acorns, and yeah, the birds may feed in them for a while. But you can have some really crappy woods with not much food. But at certain times, certain places, they're full of Um York woods. And here in Mississippi, one of the premier hunting private lands in the nation, Um, they have a block of overcup oak and the water's fairly deep. They're not in there foraging, but, but at times you can't keep them out of it. They just like to go, you know, probably because of the structure and the windbreak, it's courtship habitat, whatever they can load. Um, So I think, you know, people look at it too much from, well, if they're not eating acorns, what good are they? And I think there's a lot of inherent value that's hard to measure. Um, but I think to me, it's it's a natural part of the system. Um, you know, we're not going to change, we're not going to cut all the trees down and, and let cattails grow up. I mean, that, that wouldn't be smart. So right. we've always had the woods. We're always going to have the woods in this part of the world. Um and, and now we have a lot of science to understand hydrology and things like that. And I think it's our, it's up to us to, to, to respect that and figure out how to work with that and, and not flood the woods in September and October. And they just weren't meant to do that. So another long answer. Sorry about that. <laughs> That's right. I said, I definitely know a couple of uh, historic brand name clubs that start flooding boat ditches in September. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, to get that and that's that, you know, that, that's, that early that's jump. The pressure to to meet expectations, right? It's all about you know the whole world comes to Stuttgart to hunt mallards in the woods, right? And it's and I and I I feel for the land managers, you know, because some of them, you know, there's a lot of smart landowners or land managers out there that are around water and 
habitat every day of their life and they know what's going on, you know, but then you have, it's just the pressure. Everybody wants to come and shoot a limit of mallards in the woods. And so there's this pressure to perform. Right. Yep. And, um, man, it's like, if I don't have water, you know, my butt is grass, you know, I'm, I'm in trouble, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. So there's probably some of those guys that know better than to do that, but it's like, that's their only option, you know, and it's, it's a tough one. So I, uh, yeah, I think, and I think there's some people in denial, but a lot of people that probably know, but it's like their only alternative is to do it, you know? So anyway, it's, it's not an easy one. You know, it's, it's not an easy one. It, it's gotten more easy ecologically because we understand the science, but sort of the, the psychology and, and political side of it is, you know, that's the science is pretty clear. We know what too much flooding does to hardwoods. Either either too early or leaving it on too long. The other side is more dicey, right? You know, how do yeah. what do you what do you tell the guy that's under pressure to get, you know, all these clients and they're paying a bunch of money to shoot ducks, you know? I mean, the purist would say, too bad, don't flood the woods, you know, but we know it's not that easy. So Well, we we don't put water on ours till December. Uh I mean if it's you gotta see it like it's it's a long-term resource. And if you don't manage, you know, for the next exactly. generation, then it's just not going to be here. But uh, so we've covered rice and now we've talked, you know, bottom that hardwood. That's the two big things here in Arkansas, but kind of the third rail is pressure. And in particular pressure on, on public land. Um, I know talking to Ed Penny, he mentioned this study that you, you guys were a part of or that you and him worked on together. Can you talk a little bit about that study that you guys conducted kind of, I think it was based on hunter satisfaction and you were closing certain percentages or certain parts of a refuge. Can you talk a little bit about that? The results, kind of what you guys found doing that? Yeah. So that was, that was one of Dr. Kamishi's before I got here. Actually, when I moved back here, they were working on that. And it was one of his former grad students and they, they had some areas like at Muscadine um, WMA and they had, they manipulated like the number of days hunting and the times hunting hunted and then uh, you know looked at harvest and hunter satisfaction and all that and and I can't remember all the details associated with but the bottom line is you know um, birds need safe space right and 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 the other thing we need to be careful of is this is really and this is a really dicey one the sanctuary thing it's kind of a red hot topic. Uh, right now that um, there's all kind of different ways to hunt, right? Like some people pride themselves on being done at nine in the morning. Some people only hunt two days a week. They might hunt all day. So there's all these different patterns of, of hunting. Um, and so that is a huge factor. The other factor is not all habitat is the same, you know, trying to hunt, open bean and rice fields every day versus trying to hunt, uh, you know, denser closed in bottom one hardwood forest is not the same animal, right? Um, how many times have we hunted before in hardwoods and you fire a shot and there's still birds sitting, you know, a hundred yards away, but because of the tree barrier, they're not nearly as spooked, right? So a lot of times with the sanctuary thing, I think it depends on where you are, what part of the world. It depends on what kind of habitat you have. Um, 
and, and that all that those things really influence disturbance in my mind. And so there's really no real clear cut definition um, or or strategy, I should say, resolution, I guess, to you know what's the perfect strategy. And and I'm and, and so in the muscadine study that those were retired catfish ponds, so primarily kind of open herbaceous vegetation and. There was a um, maybe a difference by a duck or so, I think, in the areas that were hunted like two days a week versus those who were hunted like four days a week. So disturbance did matter a little bit. And, and the other interesting thing about that, there was sort of kind of getting back to the psychology of it. It seemed like the hunters were able to harvest three birds, not necessarily three mallards, but three like big ducks. Maybe it was gadwall, a wood duck, and a mallard or whatever. Three to four ducks was sort of that sweet spot. It's like it, it wasn't a big deal that they didn't shoot six, but if they only shot one or two, it was kind of a bummer. You know, it wasn't as sa- uh, satisfying. So there seems to be sort of the sweet spot of three to four ducks um, where people are, are really happy. But the other another study that we did was one of my PhD students, Joe Lancaster, and he he radio marked ten mallards, and we're working on couple of those papers right now, but it was really interesting. Like he actually had a radio mark duck that was in a hunting unit at Muscadine on a hunt day. And I think somebody might've been even been in there hunting, but it just happened to, you know, find an area and sit off to the side somewhere and avoided being killed. The duck never got shot. And, but, the, but it, they didn't do that often. Mostly at Muscadine, they used it at night. Um, and again, it's kind of open, very few trees, there's a few willow breaks here and there, but it's pretty open, herbaceous, more soil sort of environment. But then down the road in Mahana, where there's a much larger forested track, you know, and smaller tracks around there in private land, there's sort of this forest mosaic. He had a lot of birds that would sit in those woods during the day that were also open, you know. So, um, again, I think. I think where there's bottom and hardwoods is there can be more safety for some of these birds. Um, they can get away from hunting pressure and they figure out where that is. And so I think the environment, not just the hunt strategy, but the environment um, really matters, you know, the structure of the, of the habitat. So there's, we need to do more work on that. And there's a couple of radio studies going on at different places and um, that'll, that'll be more revealing, but, but definitely, you know, South Carolina, they hunt those historic duck clubs hunt one day a week. You know, California, the high dollar duck clubs hunt Saturday, Sunday, and Wednesday. Um, you know, there's people in Arkansas that hunt two, three days a week. I looked at a place the other day on Monday before I went to um, the Five Oaks, and, and they hunt Saturday and Sunday home. And they shoot a lot of ducks, you know, so... Um, there's all sort of hunting strategies, you know, do we hunt half day a week? Do we hunt three days? Do we hunt, you know, all day for two or three days? I mean, everything all across the board. And, um, I, I, I don't know, there's a lot of disagreement or uncertainty, I guess, about what that's really doing to birds. Um, and I can tell you from my experience in Missouri, I, it, you know, people want to go where there's ducks, and, and Missouri is an outstanding 
conservation organization. They got 1.8% sales tax and their public lands are among the best managed in the nation, hands down. But what that's done is it's brought half the world there to hunt, right? I mean, when you, when you put the sugar out, the ants are going to come, you know? And, and so that's not a condemnation at all. I wish every state had a one percent sales tax and can do what Missouri did, but it's changed there. And it's, it's negatively influenced my dad and brother. Um, on the areas where they control hunting, a hunting party gets about 40 acres per party, which is great. But there's other places that aren't regulated, and they, and they do that to allow more hunting opportunity, which I get. But to me and, and to them, they, they won't even hunt this area anymore because it's just not the same. You could, you could go out there at noon in your layout boat, and ducks would, would just sail around in the afternoon and, and decoy, and you could shoot your ducks between 12 and 2 o'clock, 2 and 3 o'clock. And now I think there's so much hunting pressure that um, in, in these pools that I'm talking about where they typically hunted, it is still regulated. But on several thousand acres adjacent to that, it's not. And so I'm convinced it's my own personal opinion and, and people can disagree all they want, but it isn't just the areas where we're hunting. It's what's going on all around you up to some point that we, you know, I, I think Personally, we're, we're, we've created a lot, a lot of nocturnal behavior in ducks, you know, and especially um, one of my hypotheses is if you get a really managed, well-managed area with a lot of food, why would you risk going out there in the day and getting killed? Go out there at night. You know, all you got to do is put your bill in the water and you got, you got a reward. Now, again, that's, I don't have the data. I'm just talking from experience, but I think, I think there's a lot of hunting pressure and what's kind of odd about it is, you know, the number of hunters are supposedly declining, but I think it's our ability. It's our knowledge nowadays of where ducks are and our ability to get to it. You know, I think we're really changing behaviors in birds. Um, there are no conspiracy theories. It's not like people are trying to shortstop ducks and all that, but, um, I think where there's a lot of hunting pressure, you know, we, we, we shut them down and they come out at night. Um, we're always going to have, I, I think every duck hunter is always going to have some sort of epic hunt, you know, somewhere, someplace, sometime. But I think there's a lot of, a lot of days now where it's kind of empty skies and it's not really because there's no ducks. It's just we habituated into to nocturnal behavior. I mean, ducks have always flown out at night and fed at night. I mean, they fly out to California rice fields in September, a month before duck season even starts. So there's a lot of natural nocturnal foraging behavior. I mean, that's just what they do. But I think I think we've exacerbated it in some places. And um, again, where, you know, where there's a lot of ducks because there's great habitat and everybody wants to go there, um, eventually there's a consequence, you know, and and you hear about all the scientists in North Dakota. I mean, it was always a dream place to hunt, no people. Now everybody goes to North Dakota. They can't go to South Dakota because they limit the non-resident hunters. And so, you know, what happens in North Dakota, there's a lot of a lot of biologists, friends of mine that grew up there, they don't even like to hunt there anymore. Because it's it's just leased up and there's people everywhere. And so it, it's a really difficult thing because, you know, I mean, 
none of us would have a job, or at least I wouldn't if it wasn't for ducks. And, you know, hunters are obviously really, really important. We're all hunters. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a tough one um, to try to reconcile, you know, and I just think there's a lot of things about disturbance that we don't really know, you know, is it having an effect on survival and populations? Probably not. Does it have an effect on hunting quality? I would say yes, uh, but not necessarily everywhere all the time. You know, there's, again, a lot of variability. So that's a really long answer, but um, we're having a lot of these discussions right now and kind of working on some issues with sanctuary and maybe trying to, if nothing else, it'd be great to better understand sanctuary and what it does to ducks. So at least we could relate it to the public, you know, but it's, it's my, you know, my sense nowadays that everybody knows where birds are. Now we have the equipment nowadays. We can get to them anywhere we want to get to them. And I just think there's a consequence for that, you know? So anyway. Well, yeah, I mean that, you know, the, the overcrowding thing, uh, you know, you talk to some public land hunters and they think, uh, you know, there's a hunter behind every tree. And then you talk to others and they're like, you know, I hunted three days this week. And, uh, you know, I was lucky, lucky if I ran into somebody. So, uh, you know, and I think part of it, they say it's really overcrowded because they want to have something to complain about. And hopefully they further restrict somebody coming into the area woods that they like to hunt. But uh, I don't think we're ever going to get a true picture of the overcrowding and uh, or is it right amount of people in the woods and and what kind of success and what kind of uh, what what's the temperature of the public land hunter until they put somebody at a boat ramp and basically interview them coming off the water because um, everything else to me is kind of a guess and I know that would be expensive and where do you get manpower to sit there and do that but I think we're guessing uh, or, or taking uh, you know people's opinion that is influenced by you know, what they want going on around them, uh, versus maybe reality. So, um, that may be, you know, that may be something we could do in the future. You know, maybe it's a volunteer deal that works with the commission, uh, something like that, but otherwise, you know, we're just guessing. And then, uh, you know, the nocturnal feeding deal, I have articles from, from back in the 1920s and thirties of them putting, uh, basically the same thing that are on the, the the towers at the airport with the light you know circling the uh the runways they used to do that in rice fields to keep them off there at nighttime so that you know maybe they're doing it more than they were back then but it was an issue a long time ago 100 years ago that they were having to deal with so oh, they've, yeah. they've, they've kind of always fed nocturnally um that's that's sure. not a entirely new deal yeah no that's but right. let's yeah well you know we're kind of kind of running towards the end of our our window here so uh i think we'll jump into our our fast five questions that that kind of wrap up the 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 episode and then uh you know these don't require you know a a lot of thought it's more like right off top of your head just just let it rip uh on these questions but i'll kick it off and i'm going to ask you what's your you know you spent a lot of time in arkansas you still get to come up here i'm gonna ask you what's your favorite favorite place you've been uh, to hunt ducks in Arkansas. Oh Lord, I I know I'm supposed to answer that quickly. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> it um, could be tough, especially if you got to go to a lot of different places. But there's got to be one I've favorite. Had a wonderful time at, at Five Oaks, George Dunklin's place. But uh, 
you know, just sitting out in that rice pit watching all those geese. I mean, it's just pretty remarkable. And um, it's been many years with Bayamita. I mean, just being in the in the woods, it's just it's it's odd how different places evoke different emotions, you know. And it, oh yeah, on, yeah, the types of birds we're hunting and all that. But those are three good ones. All right, I've I've got one for you: uh, mallards in the woods or specks in the rice field. Oh Lord, you guys are not right. <laughs> <laughs> That is, that is, you know, five years ago, I'd said mallards in the woods, but um, it's really weird because where I have the privilege to hunt, I, it's a close one. I guess at the end of the day, I'd probably say mallards in the woods, but man, those speckled bellies are, they are a draw. Um, now, if we were 20 miles away somewhere else, it would be easier. But again, you know, being close to that many individuals is just, it's, it's pretty awe-inspiring, so... Probably mallards in the woods. That spot you're in, uh, I've got a buddy that that leases a farm there. We, he and Spencer targeted split it, um, and it's it's just south of the Rice Research Center, and it's that is definitely a, a funnel point uh, for those yeah. things. Yeah, and he's got that farm set up to to hunt them too. So uh, that, right. that I could see why that would tend to inch closer to to mallards in the woods. Yeah, um, it's phenomenal. All right. Yeah, it it is. That's a and then and yeah, and there's a there's obviously tons of food um there. And then, you know, John Stevens place is just to the north. Um and he manages for speckle bellies too. So it uh it's a it's a great spot. Yeah. Uh all right, let's uh let's go with this one. Who uh who's your most influential mentor in the waterfowl science community? God, I've had I've had many. I guess I guess I would have to say Dr. Kaminsky because he took me on as a grad student and I first met him in 1994. We've been working together ever since, but boy, I've had good ones. I admire and McClanders and, um, you know, all the, the biologists and managers in Missouri. I mean, just an outstanding, I mean, I got to work for a lot of them, so it, it's tough, but I guess I would have to say Rick because, you know, I, I started here and here I am now and, and we still work on things together. So, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna move away from waterfowl for my last question. Uh, do the bulldogs make it to Omaha next season? <laughs> Man, you guys, I'm gonna hang up. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, you have that's to a tough you, question. <laughs> yeah, and Brian probably doesn't know this, but I I played baseball for the Razorbacks. So, uh, oh wow, okay. I've got a I've got a, a vested interest into this answer. <laughs> you know. I, I'll say I don't know, but you know what's really worrisome is, and I'll just say it, I, I, maybe I shouldn't say it here, but this whole NIL thing, and there's a lot of us around here that feel like we might never make it back because we can't compete with with the money. You know, think it's about a- we got we've got us, Old Miss, Southern Miss. You think about the baseball programs in this state alone um, and the competition for players and 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 I'll say there's a couple of prominent and I've been told this is true. Uh, there are a couple of prominent players that are literally playing right now or going to play and they're in the World Series and they were destined to come here until another school outbid us. Um, and that was that 
you know, we're like, wow, what what would that have been like this year if we had those two guys? But anyway, um, not going to mention names and not get into the politics of that. But we, but honestly, just you know, it's it just seems like trying to compete with so many schools and maybe those that have more of a financial means that can uh, move players around. I don't know. It's just it's kind of an uncertain future, you know. So, yeah, that's, inter- that's interesting that you say that about the NIL. You know, I guess what us and LSU are typically the only two programs that, that actually turn a profit in baseball, you would think that the NIL would be a little bit more advantageous for us than maybe some others. Uh, it certainly kind of levels the the Vandy advantage um, that they've had for years, but it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, yeah. It's definitely a – All you know, I know is we have wonderful resources. I know Bomb Stadium, right, up in Fayetteville. Yeah. Um, great place. I've been there before, but man, we have, we have an outstanding field and outstanding resources. I mean, if I was 18 and I came here, I'd be like, heck yeah, I'm going to play, you know, this past, not past Saturday, but this Super Bowl on weekend on Saturday this year, we played Ole Miss. We had 15,400 some odd fans. That's a lot. I think yeah. last night in Omaha, there were 25,000. We had 15,000 here on a Saturday. So yeah, it's a great place, you know, and I'm like, man, why would a kid not, why would every kid not want to come here and play in the stadium in front of these fans? You know, and it's again, kind of like the ducks. It's just not an easy answer, you know? <laughs> so I, I don't know. Um, kind of too hard, too soon to tell. You need to see how the portal un- plays unknown. out. That's yeah, right. <laughs> I, I have no idea. Who knows? We, we might, we might do really well, but I, I don't know. Uh, who, who knew that baseball would be the toughest question you got today on this podcast? <laughs> oh, no. Exactly. Yes. All right. So, yeah, this is this is the one we wrap it up with and and get some interesting answers. And it's uh, it'll be interesting to see what you come up with off the top of your head. But if there was one thing you could change in the world of duck hunting, what would it be? Probably kind of a corny answer, but I, I guess I wish – it was sort of like less corporate. It just feels so corporate nowadays. And the reason, and, and I know, you know, we got duck call manufacturers, we got waiters, we got Max. I mean, they're all, you know, a lot of great people doing great things and they're all servicing the things we want to do and, and nothing against all that, but it just seems like um, the hunting, it's almost like a competition. Like, I don't know. I just feel like, you know, everybody's got to talk about where the birds are and there's migration maps. And it's like, everybody knows everything about a duck in an instant. And it just seems like it takes the kind of the old natural blue collar part of it out of the equation. I know that sounds really stupid, but um, I I don't know. It just, it, it just feels really commercialized. And again, I'm not condemning anybody, but I feel like, maybe even some of the newer generations, maybe there's this entitlement or anticipation that, man, I should be shooting, you know, four limits a day and all the hunting videos and things like that. I mean, you know, again, everybody, you know, we love the resource, right. And everybody, everybody does looks at it a different way, but I, I guess maybe in some of the previous decades where it's just harder to get places and you can still knock on doors and get permission and, I don't know, some of the, maybe the simpler, you know, almost, almost wish it was more difficult, like to get the places and you really had to work to get somewhere. And 
may not see other people and, and you can still knock on the door and get permission, you know, that kind of stuff. I know that sounds really like beaver cleaverish, but um, to me, I don't know, just the gentlemanly part of it, you know, not, not having the post, Hey, we got, you know, we shot 25 by 7am. I mean, I love going out at 10 in the morning when the sun's hitting the mallards coming through the trees, you know, and it's just, um, again, I, not, not to, not to sound negative. It's just, uh, kind of more the maybe the the older feel, the more genteel, more blue collar aspect of it. I don't know. Um, that may not be a very good answer, but no, no, it uh, it all it all uh, rings true. Yeah, I think it's a good answer. That'll probably alienate some people, and and and, and I, I don't mean to, but anyway, um, the, the discussions at the duck symposiums and the meetings like that can get pretty pretty hardcore. So that <laughs> that's kind of my soft answer, I guess. Yeah, I, I'm sure they can. You you, you get around uh, like minded, and you get uh, you can go off pretty good on some things going on in the sport. Well, Brian, thanks uh, thanks for joining us today, man. We appreciate your time as always. Uh, I think very informative. Uh, hopefully, hopefully our audience will take away from this. So. Uh, uh, in terms of our audience, thank you all for tuning in. Uh, stay tuned for another episode upcoming soon. Please be sure to subscribe to the Standard Sportsman on your preferred podcast platform and follow us on social media at the Standard Sportsman. The Standard Sportsman podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. From the people who brought you the first motion goose decoy in 1994 comes the first motion silhouette decoy. Once again, Higdon Outdoors has changed the game. I got a chance to get my hands on some of these the other day, and I was blown away. When I first heard they were in the works, I was a little skeptical. I didn't really see how you could have all the benefits of a silhouette, like lightweight decoys, the space savings, the ease of setup, and not lose something with adding a motion system. But as soon as I put the first stake in the ground, I knew they got it right. These rigs have amazing motion in the lightest breeze, and they sacrifice nothing. I've been chasing specs for over three decades, back when a spec call was even hard to find. It's amazing how far we've come in spec hunting, and Higdon Outdoors continues to pave the way. Revolutionary footwear from Light Boots, the lightest waterproof boot ever made. Your first hands-on feed-in introduction to Light Boots is a jaw-dropping experience. With a pair of men's 11s weighing in at less than 26 ounces, Light Boots are the benchmark in ultra-lightweight toughness, next-generation comfort, and ease of use. Whether you're all-weather hunting and fishing, Farm and ranching or home and gardening, light boots are guaranteed game changers. Now available in youth sizes.